Hey, this is Charles Yao with Believe in the Fight Game. And today, my guest is Professor Robert Hill of Gracie Baja Glendale. You're going to learn a lot on this interview and podcast because Professor Robert Hill directly trained and even was a neighbor of Master Carlos Gracie Jr. He also went to Brazil for a short amount of time to learn about the Brazilian culture, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and to concentrate his studies with Professor Master Carlos. Also in this interview, you'll hear and learn the difficulties of trying to run a business, him changing his career, going from an IT director and consultant and leaning towards opening up his own school, and also the trials of hiring a black belt that's not within your same school or system that hasn't been homegrown or a farm system student of yours. So here's Professor Robert Hill of Gracie Baja Glendale, and we open up the interview with me asking him about one of his hobbies, barbecuing. Thanks. You know what? Um, So I got, I don't know, I can't remember when, maybe a little after she came along, um, I got a, I got a certificate for a class to do barbecue. <laughs> um, and it was with this guy in uh, diamond bar. Uh, his name is uh, Harry Sue S O O. And uh, you know, he's, he's fantastic theory of barbecue and everything he does, you know um, he does it the cheapest he can do it. He does it. He does it. The, uh, the most, um, scientific ways possible. Uh, and I ended up, I go, I take this class. Uh, it was back in like August. It was so hot. Um, but he taught us everything about barbecue. Um, the do the, the four main competition meats, which was uh, pork shoulder, pork ribs, brisket, and, uh, chicken. Um, so I just like to do it. I did it and I took the class and I bought a smoker and then one thing led to another and I have two smokers and then uh, I decided, you know what? There's a weird little competition circuit uh, for, for barbecue around here, okay. Texas-style barbecue. And so I just, I just did it. I just jumped in you know, with, with a couple of folding tables and, I, and a couple of smokers. And uh, uh, I did horribly the first couple of times. You mean competition-wise or competition just, just wise. starting? Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, competi- oh, both, both. You, know, you, you experiment a lot. But yeah, and then I ended up doing competition barbecue. And, uh, I, I just ended up falling in love with it. Um, you know, it's a great escape from everything you, you, you trim it, you rub it, you do what you got to do. You throw it on the smoker and then you just sit there and enjoy being outside. Um, and then the competition aspect of it just kind of spoke to me just through jujitsu, you know, it's just, you know, you, you want to compete, you want to see how you're doing out there in the world. And so it was fun. I did it for two years. Now I do it recreationally and. And sometimes I, sometimes I make a buck. Was that, was that something that you wanted to dive in or it just so happened this, this guy, well, Sue had um, the opportunity to teach it out. Or did you really seek bar- the barbecue scene? I didn't go after it. Um, ah. I knew about it. Like everyone's heard of ribs. Really there isn't much barbecue in Southern California. It's um, mostly comes from Santa Maria, central coast, which is tri-tip, you know, and uh, tri-tip is a quick and easy meat. And um, everyone thinks that when they barbecue, it's, it's hamburgers and hot dogs or maybe a few steaks or something like that. Barbecue, low and slow smoking is very different than grilling. Um, there's a little overlap at a certain point, but really they're, they're two very different things. You ask anybody from Texas, um, 
oh, we're going to go barbecue and you show up or they show up and uh, they have hamburgers and hot dogs, they're going to be offended. They're going to be like, no, no, where's the- That's brisket? grilling. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know what? It's a lot of fun and it's not common. There's really hard to find barbecue around here. Um, and people tell me that I do a really good job at it. So I'll keep doing it. Yeah, uh, for the listening and viewing audience, I've been always like uh, an admirer of how Professor Robert Hill runs his academy. So we've always established rapport and and just take this in as data. But, uh, you know, I was taking care of my dad uh, before he passed. So I was flying back and forth in Manila, Philippines. So uh, before we started training privately, I noticed the spread of jujitsu. Mm-hmm. But a big faction, we're already breaking away from the Gracie diet because people are people, right? And, yeah. and even I was blessed to interview uh, uh, this guy from uh, Henzo Gracie family, Christina, mm-hmm. Professor Christina, who's a brown belt under Henzo Gracie. And he's a big connoisseur of burgers and, and whiskey. <laughs> and, and in Asia, it's a big, big thing where food is important. Yeah. So there's, there's like food grappler sites. Do you find that increasing here in LA or just in general as a scene? Um, you know, a little bit. I, what I, what I, here's what I'll tell you about the uh, – you, you brought up jujitsu and you brought up food. Sure. Um, <laughs> I can tell you one of the first stories that I remember of uh, training at uh, what became the Gracie Baja headquarters here in, in Southern California or in Irvine. Um, so I started in, I think, 05. Um, I was a white belt. I walked in there and um, uh, Marcio, Professor Marcio Fetosa was teaching classes. Uh, Master Carlos was there. Um, I think I was there before, I think, like uh, Professor Flavio and, and, and Pipio showed up. Or, and I think Andre Fernandez was there. and. Uh, they were all teaching class and we were figuring out the Gracie Baja method and how it was going to work here in Southern California. Anyway, I'm a random white belt. I'm a pudgy white guy. I have no business being there, but I'm there every, every day. And master Carlos was teaching. Um, and I got a cramp in my calf. Uh, keep in mind a little backstory. I'm from Wisconsin where it's, it's meat and cheese and beer. That's, that, that's a staple of the diet. Right? So I get a calf cramp and I'm down there and I'm trying to like, I'm, I, I know what's good was going on. He walks out, master Carlos walks over, he grabs my foot and he just bends it back, you know? And like, and I'm like in a lot of pain and he just kind of looks at me, points at me and goes too much red meat. And then just walks away. Like, like that was like one of the first sets of words he ever said to me was <laughs> too much red meat. And it was like, I didn't know any better. You know, it was like the poster came off the wall to yell at me. Right. Um, I've told that story a couple of times, but it's, uh, it, 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 I still remember it really vividly, you know, but at that point, jujitsu and food really kind of meshed together a little bit. And I started to learn what they were t- telling me, which was, if you eat a certain way, you will perform a certain way. Um, and so, you know, you begin to dive in and learn about the Gracie diet, which is super complicated. It's like it cut foods in like eight categories and you can't mix the two categories. It's a pain in the ass. I don't think anybody follows it. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful idea, but I don't think anybody does it. Sure. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I started to learn about food and then I started to play with diet. And um, I have learned that I think one of the best diets I ever did was the whole 30. And I did that a couple of times. Um, 
but I learned a lot about meat in that time where if you just take very poor quality meat, um, it is very different than the high quality meat. You know, if you're making hamburger helper, it probably doesn't make a difference. But when you're trying to perform a certain way, you have to go after these more um, higher end meat products, you know, uh, and, and prepare them yourself and kind of make them uh, more whole, more whole, really, you know, it's your own vegetables, your own stuff, you know. Um, Then I saw a change in my performance. So I thought in the beginning, oh, meat might not be the best thing for me. Um, And maybe I go pescatarian, which was like just chicken and fish. I went that route and I felt great. But then I added high quality red meat back into it. Uh, I took meat completely out of my diet for a little while. I went completely vegetarian, which was an awful decision. Um, <laughs> not that I, did. I felt terrible. Um, it's just, you, you, you couldn't, I couldn't get the right nutrients in and I was trying to do it the best way possible, but I gave up on it. went back to pescatarian. Now I professionally barbecue. So like it bounces around, you know? Um, I think everybody's got an opinion on food because of that, because with jujitsu, you immediately see a result. You know, if you eat bad lunch, you'll have bad training session. It's immediate. There's no lag. Um, if you eat really well, you wait your four hours, you digest properly, you drink the right water or you drink water and then you train. Oh, I performed well. You know, from a school owner point of view, what, what always got me was people said, I can't afford jujitsu. I can't afford jujitsu. You know what, if you, what would happen is the people who would cut out their Friday night going out, drinking or eating or dinner every once a week, they found that, I, that they were coming to jiu-jitsu on Friday instead. They would show up Saturday morning too because they felt good because they didn't destroy themselves Friday night. And then since they weren't going out four times a week, all of a sudden they had enough money to pay for jiu-jitsu. So the food aspect of it made several different differences for me. How I performed, how much money I had, and how well I could do jujitsu. And you know, that that I think imprinted on me from a very early time. Right. So in regards to training at the the HQ, the mm-hmm. mighty HQ in Irvine, <laughs> how much of that was being preached or was it really more like training jujitsu based? Um, could you feel it? Like, could you feel it? Like, oh, everyone's healthy eating here. This is, check my chakra. I'm, I'm paying for this $11 press <laughs> juicery. No, it was um, the professors there um, at the time and still today, even though they have like hundreds and hundreds of students, it, it, it's, it's always a conversation that happens maybe after training or it's, uh, one or two small comments made on the mat that are positive. You know, this never, it, 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 it's never, Hey, look, if you want to go out and have in and out six days a week, like, awesome, go for it. But it, it, they tell you right away, look, watch what you eat and then watch how you perform. And then you make the best decision yourself. Nothing was ever pushed. Okay. You know, um, it was always implied. It was just kind of there. And then we all learned it on our own. Um, I spent a lot of time personally with Master Carlos. Um, truth be told, I'd go to his house and uh, I'd help him fix his computer so he could play video games. And in those personal conversations, there was a lot more um, 
passed on to me about the way that he eats and then what he eats and how he eats. And I think there's once or twice where he'd come up and he just handed me a glass of something. And I said, what's this? And he said, I don't know, just drink it. <laughs> so like, okay, you know, you just drink it. He's always been experimenting with different foods. He's always been experimenting with how things um, react to his body and how he reacts to them. So it wasn't pushed, but it was always there. It was always like, oh, what are you eating? Oh, what are you eating? No. And of course, the competition guys came down to tell you what they were always eating. And, and one of the main reasons why I wanted to put you on the good blast and interview you because <laughs> you're, you're one of the few people that um, directly trained with the man, with, with Carlinos, right? Yep, yep. Um, I trained with him quite a bit. Um, more than I think people kind of recognize or kind of would want to realize – because when, when Gracie Baja started here in Southern California, um, I was, like I said, I was really lucky. I didn't know what I had. I wish that I could go back and tell myself, like, look, you need to go every day. But I went in there, and I think Master Carlos was there for a few months out of the year, and then he'd end up going back to Brazil and then doing some work there, and that's when Marcio and um, Andre uh, would would handle things and then he would come back and then he would really teach a bunch of classes and then it would kind of like this revolving door um, of these three or four guys and then Pipio came in and then uh, um, uh, Andre or Professor Flavio came in you know and um, yeah I just we actually ended up living on opposite ends of a same apartment complex in Lake Forest mm. so I could I didn't do it often but I found out he lived like right across the street from me so <laughs> it was very, very consistent. I could see him a lot. Um, once he figured out I could fix computers, then it was all over from there. You know, that was my job at the time. So wait, well, so were you living in or were just working in Mission Viejo when you were working in IT and consulting, uh, which is your Irvine. friend that got you into mm-hmm. jiu-jitsu? Yeah, Irvine. It was, um, it was in Irvine itself. I lived, I lived in Irvine, uh, Lake, Lake Forest. And the business that I had was there. Her business that I worked for was there in Irvine. And then, um, yeah. I listened to the podcast, How I Built This. Okay. From what I've uh, learned through speaking to you, taking private lessons and looking up your bio, you started training as, uh, as you were like a kid's instructor when you were a blue belt. It was by accident, stuff like that, where daylight savings time, hey, Robert, handle this. <laughs> that was my, yeah, so that was actually one of the first adult classes I ever taught. Um, so I was teaching the, I had extra time. That was it. I had extra time. I didn't have, I had a really flexible job, um, and I would show up at the academy early. Um, Professor Andre uh, said, hey, do you want to help with the kids' classes? And I joined a guy named Jeff and um, – a uh, buddy of mine, Paul Barbosa, uh, he was there too. And we ended up teaching the kids uh, just because we had the time. And Professor Andre had his plate full uh, starting up and, and dealing with the IBJJF. And so he was kind of like, hey, guys, if you handle these kids, I'll give you a half an hour private lesson before the class. And that's what we did. So I, so I got paid in private lessons from Andre. I wish I could remember half of that stuff. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I was a blue belt at the time, and it worked out wonderfully for us. Um, I had a great time doing it, and it laid the seeds of instruction really early on. Uh, again, right place, right time. And then I think the first actual class that I taught, sorry, uh, first actual adult class I taught was, yeah, was daylight savings time. I showed up on time. There was like eight of us outside, and um, we called Marcio and said, Marcio, class is starting. 
what do you mean? We still have an hour. I'm like, no, no, we, the clock's rolled back, man. And he, uh, he said, well, who's there? And they named off names. He goes, Robert can teach it. And so, I mean, look, Marcio, I think showed up, Professor Marcio showed up, I think like, I got the warm up in and then I got like into the first technique and he rolled in um, and, and took it over from there. But um, yeah, you know, it, a lot of my life in jujitsu has been right place, right time. And but just not giving up. With, with the start of teaching, mm-hmm. was that when you go, you know what, I, I'm done with IT? Or was it um, way before that? Or did it have to build? You know, uh, it built. It built up. It was time. Uh, I spent some time... Teaching was fun, uh, but again, I was a blue belt, and so I was really trying to develop jujitsu and and take advantage of what I had. Uh, teaching was just something because I had the extra time, and I got to make some cool friends and and develop deeper relationships with uh, with the professors there. So um, it just kind of grew over time to be something like I could do this. This is kind of cool. I really enjoy it. I didn't like sitting in an office. Um, I'm not very, I'm not very, I don't belong in a corporate environment at all. (laughs) Not anymore. Um, And so, you know, around my purple belt, I think I started to think, oh man, maybe I could do this for a living. I think someone opened up an academy in Garden Grove. I think that was one of the first academies to open outside the headquarters. And I was about a purple belt at the time. And I thought to myself, like, I think maybe I can do that. Uh, and that's when I really started to to think about it. So what and, was it? See, the uh, podcast, How I Built This, is about entrepreneurs who struggle. They share uh, their struggle. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, how they made it through. And, and you can imagine oh. the math of getting to 10. It's Sometimes it's 20 minus 10. It's 1 plus 1 plus 1. Five times. It's so many different maths, right, in succeeding. Um, uh, maybe you could share some of the difficulties of – Funding the project, you know, I mean, the, how much, the, the, the struggle. How much, time, how, how much time do you have? Hey, man, uh, there's with, so with many the, struggles. The, the, this is this is your your time to shine, brother. A so, what was the struggles. first step? Right, like, what were the initial first steps where you got? You know what? I'm gonna try this. Oops, that did not work out, and it failed. Uh, I would have to say, so I opened my academy as a brown belt. Uh, so I was at second degree brown belt. I had two stripes on my brown belt when I decided I was going to go ahead and do this. And this is then, in Glendale. In Glendale, yeah. I was okay. originally going to open up. I was originally going to open up in Pasadena, right? Because uh, I just liked the area, you know. And at this point, all of Southern, all of um, Orange County had been overly populated. I thought with jujitsu, there was a lot of jujitsu in there, um, and so I wanted to move into LA. And uh, the furthest out was kind of Pasadena. I liked the area. thought it was a beautiful place. At the time, there was um, a guy there uh, named uh, Hamalu Bahal. <laughs> and they had a different jiu-jitsu academy. It wasn't a Gracie Baja yet. It became uh, Gracie Baja Pasadena. And I knew this. And I thought, oh, I am, you know, Bahal's Gracie Baja. So I'm like, I am not going to even think about being near Bahal. Um, and so one of my friends went, why don't you just move over, uh, Garrett Glava, you know, he, he was, um, helping with the real estate at the time. And he goes, why don't you just move over to Glendale? And so I did. I didn't even know Glendale existed. I wasn't, I hadn't. And, <laughs> and then I end up, you know, it'll be 10 years next month. Actually, we've been open. Oh, nice. Congrats, man. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, um, if you want to come by and have a cupcake six feet away from me, that's about the only thing we can do. You're welcome. To- <laughs> I'm down. I'm with it. Okay, say cupcake. Uh, I'm there, man. Yeah. So, um, 
uh, yeah, we're coming up on 10 years. So opening as a brown belt. Um, at the time, the, there was no franchise agreement. Um, at the time, between myself and Gracie Baja, there was a one-page letter, a memorandum of understanding uh, that Master Carlos, I, and I think Professor Flavio signed. And that was it. By the time I actually opened, we had the franchise agreement in place. So, you know, it was also 2010. So money wasn't, it, was, it wasn't as difficult to get in to get. Um, real estate was a lot cheaper than it is today. But still, you know, I signed a lease for like 6,500 bucks a month with no students and maybe a month, two months of residual of, of actual money and then rolled the dice and opened the doors. I put the mats down. Some of the early challenges, um, you know, a lot of it is, is uh, learning how to respond to people. Jiu-Jitsu, I don't think, when you teach a class of Jiu-Jitsu, you teach 15 minutes of technique, maybe. That's it. You're conveying Jiu-Jitsu, actually adding to someone's Jiu-Jitsu takes maybe 15 minutes. The rest of the entire hour is spent seeing people responding to their personalities, making sure that they're with the correct partner, that it's all about creating an environment that facilitates the right amount of learning. Look, if you take two guys and throw them in a room, teach them a couple arm locks and then let let them fight, are they going to learn jujitsu? Eventually. But if you have 15 people and if you can match them appropriately and you can make the environment fun and safe and clean and make them feel like they're having fun, you're going to get more learning done. You understand? So that was what I got to really cut my teeth on as um, a kid's instructor. Because kids, as you can look at this kid right here, you can (laughs) tell, like they don't hide anything. They tell you right away what their opinions are. I don't like this. Exactly. You know, and so when you look at people training, you can look and say, ah, those two don't mix. So it was learning that that took some time. And I think that um, once I figured that out, once I, once I learned how to read that, my classes really changed a lot. Um, and, and my retention, my, my retention went up a lot. Um, you know, one of the challenges I had too was that I wasn't comfortable selling jujitsu. I was very much in love with the product of jujitsu and I didn't think like, well, I want to teach everybody. And, uh, and so you end up undercutting jujitsu a little bit and selling yourself short. That was one of the problems that I started with. That was something that you had to get over. You had to get over like really changing the mind about that. Like, no, I love jujitsu. It has to put food on my table and I can't devalue it in any way. And to keep loving it. And and that way you don't, you know, you have this resentful feeling towards jujitsu. Absolutely. You know, um, but then also you're, you kind of open this door to people. Okay. Uh, You kind of open this door to people to say, Hey, this is jujitsu. And if you go, Hey, this is jujitsu. It costs $200 a month, but I don't feel comfortable. Like my jujitsu may not be worth $200. You know, in my head, you're thinking this, I'll charge you only 150 or, you know, maybe 100 or something like that. They lose out on the value of jujitsu as well. When they pay for jujitsu and they pay you what you're worth, they feel jujitsu is worth more too. So you can't undersell your product because then it just spoils it 
what it what it really is you know you know it really is like this scarce product this is a really valuable product so treat it that way you know and people will see it that way and then that attitude can kind of spread throughout the whole community i think i, I think i kind of got a little uh scatterbrain and sidetracked there but um no i love it when people you know go left i love that <laughs> okay uh yeah you know just jujitsu is really important um and and actually this pandemic that we're in man it's been very interesting to see how people are because everybody who loves jujitsu has been forced away from jujitsu they've been pushed into their homes we've had to change business models like crazy you, you don't understand the change that you know has taken place or maybe i mean you do but you get the idea it's crazy the number of people who i get telling me i miss it so much when are you going to open i miss it so much you know i need this they're missing this tangible thing that used to happen to them where they got their hands on somebody and they moved and they exercised and all this and i, I see people going stir crazy because they can't do it so there's an addiction to jiu-jitsu for sure that to me tells me that the product is worth something you know it's worth a lot if you can get addicted to it if it can bring you this peace and this happiness that it that it does so often or you know people i think professor uh flavio talked about jiu-jitsu not so much saving his life but making his life giving mm. his life value um and i totally see that because i i meet people whose jiu-jitsu's who, whose lives were really saved by jiu-jitsu you know they it just revolutionized the way that they live and then there's people who found jujitsu and went this gave me purpose um and so that happens that happens that happens quite a bit you know especially for me i didn't want to waste my life working on computers and doing all that you know I right have the best i have the best job in the world <laughs> right and with me interviewing so many different people i i know and i'm i'm not gonna in the spirit of bridge burning but I know a little bit about the Alberto Crane, um, mm -hmm. Gracie Baja, Homolo Bajal. You know, there's, there's, yes. there's business everywhere. So without the spirit of you burning and naming yeah, people, yeah. No, but, what's, but what's like an example of what took you to get to launching your HQ in, in Glendale? Was it a loan-based thing? Was it uh, oh, oh, that part. someone, you know, something like that? Um. No, it was a lot of sacrifice. Um, mine was mostly sacrifice and, and sweat equity. Um, I had decided that I was going to open. Um, my IT business was doing really well. Uh, and I ended up saving up just as much money as I possibly could and then did most of it with my own capital. At the time, I think it ran maybe 40 grand uh, for me, 40 to 50 grand for me to do my total, total, um, academy there uh but i never took a paycheck until 2015 so five years into it was when i actually got paid because for the first four years uh i worked another i worked another job so i, I put in probably well i don't know i worked seven days a week you know so i i, I don't know I, I i would get up at seven i would go to work my my normal job i'd work at my clients until like one o'clock and then I would head up to Glendale from Irvine. I would teach, I would teach any one-on-one -on -one intro sessions we had starting around two or three, whenever I got there, I'd start the kids class at four or five. I'd do two kids classes and then the adult classes. By the time I closed the academy at 10 o'clock and headed home, you know, I got back to Anaheim where we lived about 11 o'clock. 
And I did that every day. And then, and then the mistake that I think I made was when I hired help. Like intro to your school? Yeah. Like instructors, instructors. There wasn't the pool of instructors that there was today. There was no ICP. There's no instructor training program from Gracie Baja. It was all the personal relationships that you had. Oh, I can pay this guy 50 bucks a class or I can do this. I can do that. That's fine. Hiring people is fine. But hiring people who have the same uh, com- the same passion is near impossible. Um, and I faced a second challenge later on for that. Because once I realized, okay, I got to cut everybody out and just do this all myself. You do a great job. It shows in your classes. People sign up. The school grows. Now you have a whole different problem. Whereas... It's only you who can do everything. So how do you begin to train other instructors? And, and that's where I fall back again on some of the teachings that Master Carlos and Professor Marcio gave me and a lot of the recommendations they gave me about how to try to develop people. Um, and I've done great at that. Uh, and I've also failed miserably at that in a few ways. You know, So you have to be really careful with who you hand the keys over to. Um, they have to really follow the same dream as you. And I think there's, you, you mentioned kind of like a lot of rivalries in jujitsu and a lot of bad business deals and things like this. Um, you know, people change a lot. People enter into an agreement thinking everything's going to be awesome. And then you kind of find out like, man, they don't share the same dream the same way you do. Same vision. Doesn't match. Right. Doesn't quite match. And that's when things begin to fall apart. And that's what I learned not to really hire from the outside is really and truly raise your own instructors. And when I say raise your own instructors, I don't mean take a guy and train him. I mean, you got to raise this guy from a white belt to a blue belt, teach, start teaching kids classes, make sure he's there with you. The farm. It's a farm system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, but at a certain point you have to give them a lot of opportunity. Like, hey, it's time for you to start teaching adult classes. What do you want to do? Uh, and then at, at a certain point, you got to go, okay, fantastic. Like, I think you've done a wonderful job. You're a black belt now. I think it's time you own your own academy. And now you help them. You know, you're like, okay, great. Let's go open a Gracie Baja for you. That's what we want. You know, and, and, and that's happened a few times. One of my, one of my black belts is uh, going to be opening his own academy at some point. Um, and a couple other ones, you know, they – they find work, you know, um, which is wonderful because they're doing their, they're doing their dream. So, and that, and that I think is, uh, one of the most rewarding parts of my job. Yeah. Because a lot of the older mentality from what I'm learning, and this is my opinion, it, it's very like, no, you're mine, you're mine. But uh, the, this, this newer school, I would say mid school and newer school mentality is, Hey man, get yours. You, you've, you've done your time. You're like a brother to me. You're, you're definitely family. And you have the keys to your own car now. You were driving my car, but here's, here's a set of keys for another vehicle. And, and that, uh, I think that that's, that's something that's important for, I'm interviewing the right person. It, it, it's important for people to hear that, that you got to put people on the good blast and give them their chance. You know, you're not, you're not the owner of them, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, 
you're an owner of their experience. And I go back to like talking about the first experience of jujitsu that I had and how it imprinted on me to give me what I have today. You got to remember, like I, I firmly believe that black belts belong in front of fundamental classes, GB1 classes. Absolutely. You, your first experience should be someone who's so experienced and so um, uh, a veteran in jujitsu because they're going to be able to portray jujitsu in a way that a purple belt just can't. They can, the purple belt can love jujitsu. They can do an amazing job. They can be great instructors, but they don't convey jujitsu like the same way. Just, I mean, they just haven't at the time. Man, you're a black belt. You've got ten years under you. You know, um, I'm going to talk about jujitsu totally different than a guy who's got the passion of a white belt or a blue belt. You know, um, just because I've seen seen so much about it. You know, one thing that I can tell you about new schools opening. Um, I was leaving, I was trying to leave Master Carlos's house one day and, uh, I asked him a question about why it takes, why it can take 10 years to get a black belt. Um, when I think, uh, Grandmaster Carlos spent maybe three years under Maeda, <laughs> maybe three years, uh, training judo under him. So what happened, you know, and then at a certain point it was just a belt a year should take five years, you know, white, blue, purple, brown, black. And this is the Why? legend, Maeda. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I think I think Grandmaster Carlos trained with Maeda for maybe three years. That was it. It wasn't much. It wasn't much. It wasn't until like the Gracie family, the, those those five brothers, really developed themselves, and then Holas came along and really changed what jujitsu was and meant. Um, that we have the jujitsu we have today. You know, in I said, why why does it take ten years to get a black belt now? And Master Carlos was telling me he goes. You know, so many people, they were afraid to promote someone to a black belt. They were afraid to promote because as soon as this guy got his black belt, um, then he would be able to, he would leave. He would go right across the street and he would take all his friends with him and you would lose half your school. And so when it came down to Master Carlos's students and his black belts, he, um, he told them, he's like, great. Let's give you a black belt. Let's, you earn your black belt. You're a fem, you know, you're awesome. Let's go. And let's find you a school because if I help you, then I help you find a school that's far enough away from me. And you know what, even if we take five of my students or six of my students, we seed your new school with experienced people already. So when brand new people come in, they get the same experience that they'd have at a school that's been established for a decade and a school that's been established for two months or a month. So all of a sudden, you know, these people, they all, they all started opening up their own academies. Um, and that, and master Carlos had this vision in his head for a long time. And that's why it's called Gracie Baja. If you look at a lot of the other, schools out there they're all named after the instructor or the founder you don't have to hold on to the okay, thing by now. the way yeah we're good uh so if you look at all the other all the other schools out there they tend to be named after someone or an association thereof um it's only kind of the past couple of years where you've had people just come up with abstract names but i think gracie baja was one of the first abstract names you know when when carlinos moved it to baja da Chihuca, um i think the original name was the gracies of baja uh, I think that was what it translated out to. My Portuguese is atrocious, so I 
I can pretend okay. at best. <laughs> so um, I think the original name was Gracie's of Baja, but he truncated it to just Gracie Baja so that anybody can run the academy and it's still part of his. It's not Carlos Gracie's Jiu-Jitsu. It's Gracie Baja. So he really, he really kind of pushed that out there. And when we started that, stop. When we started that, then people started to pick on us a bit. Oh, you're selling belts. You're doing this. You're doing that. But really what it was, was we just took the fear out of giving someone a black belt. And we wanted them to open a school. And we say, okay, let's open. But let's open 10 miles away over here where there's a different – let's be strategic about this. And today we have well over 800 schools worldwide. I think we're probably gearing up to be 900 schools. Um, the push – that I think Gracie Baja has, you know, is, is by the end of 2021 to have a thousand schools worldwide. And I don't know anybody else doing that. And it wouldn't be, if I was so conservative about, I was afraid this guy would take his students away. I was, I have 10 black belts now, or like, yeah, something like that, like 10 black belts underneath me. If each one of them opened a school, that would be the happiest day of my life. I'd love to see them open a school, you know, no problem with it because you're teaching more jujitsu. You're spreading more jujitsu. So, and that's that's the goal. Okay, so it's now time for a quick break. While you're waiting this out at home with us at Believe, you can still have some fun with betting. Do it at betonline.ag. There's no NBA, NHL, or MLB. You might think there's nothing to do, but we got you. BetOnline still has hundreds of places to wager, including their online casino with poker and blackjack. It's not only that, sports aren't only done. There's so much more, right? There's EA Sports, which has been up and coming. Don't sleep on EA Sports. American Idol. Another contest type show like Big Brother. There's also the elections. And there's 750,000 poker series. There is still fun to be had, so go to betonline.ag. Use the promo code MYPOD100. We'll hook you up. To receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. One thing I've learned after uh, speaking and interviewing Jean-Jacques Machado and Higgin Machado, they've commonly brought up Carlinhos all the time. They're like... Is, even in one of my interviews, Sagan was like, oh, Carlinhos was the guy that taught me how to go A to B to C and piece C to B to A, you know, mm-hmm. like to really like, okay, this is revolving. And what I'm also learning right now, it seems like from my experience interviewing people, it seems like it's Hals and Carlinhos who are the completely open-minded ones and who added like uh, the visionary structure. You know, and then maybe, maybe if you can add some more, not that I really want to overpraise no. Master Carlos Jr., but hey. I, I, I think, I think it's still underappreciated. You mean, you mean uh, the impact that Master Carlos has had? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, look, you don't, you don't grow. Um, you don't. It, it, look, I, I, my understanding too is in the early days there was everybody was out for themselves a little bit. They were fighting for themselves. And then when it came time to compete, they put on a Gracie Baja patch and they fought for Gracie Baja. Um, Then over time, then it was kind of strange because 
these people would run their own academies. They would come together. We would teach as Gracie Baja, and then we would fall apart again. And this, this I think, bothered Master Carlos a little bit. Um, I don't know. He'll he'll correct me if I'm wrong. But like, he wanted Gracie Baja fighters. He wanted Gracie Baja schools, and he wanted Gracie Baja trophies. Um, he wanted us to be the best competition team, the best jiu-jitsu team, and the and the widest team in the world. You know. And you don't do that without fighting convention a little bit. You don't do that without making a few enemies. Um, so it's, it's, it may take time, you know, for everyone to say, okay, yeah, he had the best idea. Because nobody wants to admit that. Because I'm sure at some point down the line, Master Carlos's ideas and – Machado's ideas clashed, you know, collided. Um, they used to teach on the same in the same building, one upstairs, one downstairs, you know. So there was friendship there. I'm friends with Zebaleza, uh, Leo Teixeira, down in uh, in Brazil. Uh, wonderful guy, absolutely love him. Um, I teach one of his cousins jujitsu. He's one of my brown belts. He's the best with kids, hands down. Best system with the kids. It's fantastic. Um, and uh, but he was part of Gracie Baja back in 85, 86. Today, he's his own thing. He and Master Carlos are pretty close. Personally close. When it comes to business, Carlinos just doesn't, nope. You did your thing, I do my thing. Leave us alone. Right. So there's still some very people who are very set in their older ways. And eventually, maybe they'll come around. Or if they are successful, and this is from Master Carlos too. If they're successful, he's happy too. Because it's still one person teaching jiu-jitsu. If they're not successful, they should have followed us. Do you feel like, you know, the older teams like Gracie Baja, Novo Niao, and we can go on about Alliance, mm -hmm. and without the spirit of uh, politics, do you feel it was heavier in Brazil versus the U.S. as far as for politics? Yes. From, from what you've observed, at least? Yes. I, I think so. I think it was very – it's still – how Look, after being in Brazil a little bit, I spent very little time in Brazil, but after talking with them and after knowing Brazilians, um, they're, they have a passion. And that passion sometimes trumps their professionality. And, and they, uh, I, don't know, I don't know what the best way to put it is. It, it, it's not so much about business in Brazil as it is about just jiu-jitsu. It's still about jiu-jitsu in America. But it's what the U.S. is allowing us to do as far as the spread of jiu-jitsu. Spread in Brazil, the growth in Brazil was very chaotic. It was spot, splo, uh, splotchy. It was here and it was there. And then things that guys would fight, they'd get mad over something random and then um, a territory dispute and then, boom, there'd be a huge explosion. But when it came to Brazil, it was very – or when it came to America, it was very organized, I think. It was more organized. Um, and I just think that's the American, uh, influence in jujitsu. It caused it to be more professional in a way. Um, you go to Brazil sometimes and, or, you know, you'll go into an academy and it starts when everyone wants to start and then it ends when everyone's tired. My class starts at seven o'clock. There's a water break technique. It finishes at seven fifty-six every day. Boom. People have kids, people have dinner, people have parking, people have jobs, people, it, we're more scheduled and regimented here. 
Um, and so once we adapted to that, it allowed Gracie Baja to, I think, grow a lot better. And so we're trying to say like, hey, it's business, not personal. In Brazil, it was more personal than business. I, that's my feeling on it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> because, because, you know, I, I was raised in Asia. You know, I lived in Singapore mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of it is in the Philippines. And there is something about the U.S. adding structure because it's multiple ethnicities and cultures living in mm-hmm. the ocean. You know, essentially, so there's some value to that where you have to be structured. Otherwise, it's going to be escape from L.A., escape from New York, right? So, uh, you know, it just it just feels good to, you know, big up the Americans, the American system of like, hey, we have to be structured here, you know, and and thank God everyone's catching on to that about structure. Yeah, um, it's also it also it also goes back to facilitating learning. Um, and you know, if you, if you only have one hour, uh, to do something, why are you spending 40 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever conditioning, save the conditioning for later. People used to say to me, we want a conditioning class or we want this or we want that. And I would say, look, you come to me to learn jujitsu. I can teach jujitsu. The fitness will come along with it. If you want to get in better shape, go get in better shape. There's a gym down the road. You can go anywhere you want and go learn. Yeah, at the time, CrossFit was blowing up too. You know, if you want to be the best at exercising, go do CrossFit. Fantastic. It'll make your jiu-jitsu better, sure. Um, but if you want to get better at jiu-jitsu, just keep showing up. But I'm not going to waste 15 minutes of my time getting you in better shape when jiu-jitsu will do that for you. I will get you, you know, our warm-up, I think – I think it runs nine minutes or something like that. And then there's some cool down in there uh, at the end of the class, which is about six minutes or something. But like that's the extent of the conditioning that I run, that I run the rest of the conditioning the rest of the workout is built into jujitsu. So I don't like, I, I respect, I think that we respect people's time more than other, other cultures in a way, maybe if that's the right way to put it, I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but we, we, we understand, look, I have only a short period of time to teach you the most jiu-jitsu that I can. So how can I do that the most efficiently? And that's where, you know, the Gracie Baja method really comes into play. Now, you've also refereed. Um, I did. How much of that, you know, uh, you also mentioned in several articles, like, you know, competition wasn't really for me, but, <laughs> you know, you kept refing. But how did refing help you as as I um, respectfully uh, yeah. label it as a non-competitor? How did refereeing help you in jiu-jitsu as a non-competitor? So, yeah, my referee career was very short, um, but it was there. Uh, I, did, I did some stuff, uh, especially for the, the GB comp nets when we first opened there. Um, you know, I was a terrible competitor. I'll say that all the time. It just wasn't my thing. I'm not a, I'm not a great competitor. I did it at every rank. Um, I've just never had the drive to train that hard, um, to work out the extra. I wasn't competitive in my jujitsu. My jujitsu was more about learning it. And I just love the absorption of knowledge. So I knew at some point if I was going to be teaching jujitsu, the sport arena is where jujitsu shines the most. I knew I wasn't going to be bringing home gold medals. So I had to have knowledge of this piece of of, of our, of our, um, economy, right up this piece of our jujitsu. Um, so I thought, all right, 
if I'm terrible at doing, I'm not going to win. I better figure out what's actually going on here. And uh, that's when I decided to dive into the rules and like really learn about the ref, learn about the rules um, and get to see, you get a front row seat to how people are winning and losing. So when I came to train, when I came to train competitors or have competition classes at my schools or at my school, it was very easy for me to say, oh, well, this is high percentage. This is low percentage. This is what you should be focusing on. This is how we should run our classes. Um, so it, it, it made a big difference in how I teach, not so much how I think about jujitsu, but it made a difference in how I, how I ran sp specific classes. You know, without it, I felt my school was going to be missing that competitive aspect. Yeah, so, so, my, so by way of learning the rule set, by way of being part of the IBJJF in a very small way, being part of refereeing, I was able to say, look, if we're going to compete, this is how I think we should do it. You know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't do it with a gold medal around my waist. I did it uh, being yelled at in Portuguese for making mistakes a lot, which was awesome because I didn't speak it. So they could right. swear at me all they wanted. They're like, oh, my God, they're just encouraging me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? A little bit, yeah, yeah. But, it's a tough job. Those guys have the hardest job, hands down, hardest job. I, I bet, like uh, UFC 249, Dominic Cruz was talking about, like how, like, hey man, you stopped the fight prematurely. I was yes. still on the come up, you know. And it, it's the most underrated job. It's like being a teacher, being a cop, or being a server. Yeah, I mean, I watched the UFC this last weekend, um, and yeah, I, I call. I thought that was a really early stoppage. There was what just a few seconds left in the round, I believe. Yep. Um, was he defending himself intelligently? Like he wasn't firing shots back, but if you look at the punches that his opponents were making, look, they weren't direct punches. He was getting up. I think that fight should have gone on, but I've called fights early too. Not fights. I've called matches early too. Nobody wins when you call a match. Um, because, but except, you know, as a referee, in your heart, you know, look, look, I prevented this person from getting damaged more. Right. But I also robbed him of the opportunity to continue. Uh, you're going to make a couple bad choices like that. But in the end, in the referee's defense, he made a decision with the competitors, with the athlete's best interest in mind. That you can sleep. You can sleep with that. Like you could, yeah, I can go to sleep like that because... I felt he was in danger. I felt he wasn't going to protect himself. I didn't want him to get hurt, so I had to step in. My job was to step in, and that's what he did. Maybe it was off. You know, you, I think you, it was off. Do you think it's harder to ref an MMA fight versus a jiu-jitsu fight because there's strikes involved? Or is that way too, too <laughs> evergreen no, and so many maths behind that? There's no, there's no points in MMA that you have to score as a referee. You know, as a referee in the MMA, you just sit back and go, okay, he's bleeding a lot. <laughs> Let's stop. Um, or, you know, uh, call the fight. I think the jiu-jitsu referees, they probably have it a little harder. They do. Um, number one, it's all day. It's a long day. And you get a lot of fatigue. By the time you're six hours into this, um, you've barely got a little bit of lunch. Man, you're forgetting sometimes what happens, you know? And also, because of the points, you have to kind of feel people's intention as well as remember where they started from. Because remember, a sweep isn't instantaneous all the time. 
it could start, they could move, they could change, the position can move around a little bit, they could sit back down, and then finally the guy falls over, okay, now that was points, or that wasn't points. So the referee in jiu-jitsu has to think a lot more in MMA. I mean, I haven't refed an MMA fight, but um, Let me tell you that's what I think. I think the, I think the jiu-jitsu guys have a lot harder. Right. And, and, and because um, the benefit of revolving and rotating referees, like it, it, it's never the same referee from the previous fight carrying on to the next. You know, exactly. they normally have a pecking order. Okay, co-main event, Herb Dean. Main event, John McCarthy, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the fights are, what, 15 to 25 minutes. So 25 minutes can be a lot because you're moving around. You're sweating your ass off. You're, you're busy. Um, but and go ref kids matches for three hours and tell me what kind of how you feel. <laughs> it's, it's tough, man. Yeah, I can imagine the white noise is so direct from the parents, too. You know, that, or, or even just the audience, it's so white noise derived, too, right? <laughs> okay, that laughter and that facial expression is... Pa- pa- parents, I, I am a parent. Uh, parents are horrible people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, man, I, 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 am just, I am just floored by just the, the lack of sportsmanship amongst parents. Is is sometimes the most jarring thing. Um, you can't yell at a five year old like that. You, 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 what are you expecting out of a five year old? What are you expecting out of a twelve year old? You know, these are still children, and, and I think people once because jujitsu is a com- combat sport. I think sometimes parents t- want to live through their kids because they never had the chance to do a combat sport like this, and sometimes they are just the absolute worst people in the world. Um, they're also sometimes the best. You know, um, you, you have, there's no loss darker than a jujitsu loss or a fight like an MMA loss. There's no loss darker than that. Uh, go back and listen to Ronda Rousey after she lost to Holly Holm and how mentally exhausting and, and how, how bad that hurt. Um, the most depressing scene I've ever seen was the, uh, the locker room to the world's one year, uh, on a Sunday. I was working and I walked through the locker room and you hear you have the biggest and best fighters on the planet of, of jiu-jitsu, the guys who could get here, black belts, just head in their hands, just balling it out. And the same thing, the kids go through the same thing. And, and I've seen parents look at them and go, well, what's wrong with you? How could you lose? How could you lose to him? Why did you do it this way? Why did you do it that way? To a parent that maybe has never trained a day in their life. Um, you also get to see the golden parents though. There are some amazing amazing parents out there who are like man win lose or draw we're proud of you we love you this is awesome and I, i'm happy to say that there's more of those than there are of the well, other that's ones good to hear. but uh, par- parents can be just i think they just forget that you have a child doing a very adult thing which is fighting and and you can't children are very delicate i think they're they're going to remember that, you know? Um, and the biggest crime of all, I, I think is that they might lose their, their joy in jujitsu. No one, no one wants the hardest kid to train. The hardest kid to teach is the kid that's there because his dad threw him out there and refuses to let him quit. Sometimes these kids need to quit just yeah. to preserve their jujitsu. Did you ever have back. to suggest that to a parent? Like, Hey, you know, as much as, mm-hmm. You know, I want my academy to grow. This might not be for your kid now, or maybe later down the line, you could re-enroll him. But for right now, this may not be for him or her. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I have a, I have a rule of thumb that I go by 
you know, with the, 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 all the kids we have, if your kid fights you going to jujitsu, fight the fight, force him. If your kid fights you going there, fight the fight. How is your child when you leave? If your kid is happy that you, that he came and enjoyed the class and it was good, then you did the right thing and fight the fight. But if your kid is angry in the beginning and angry that they came, then it's time to stop for a little while uh, at least because there's no learning taking place. They're no longer having fun. So they're not learning anything. They're just going through the motions for you. Um, and the other thing is it's very hard to tear your kid away from a more preferred activity. Given the opportunity, I'd sit here and play video games all day too and not want to go to jujitsu. So of course, jujitsu is work. I'm going to get beat up. I'm going to get sweaty. I'm going to get knocked around. Um, I would much rather sit here and play video games and get beat up. But once I go, I'm happy. I'm proud that I went. I did a great job. I'm really happy. I have more drive. I want to do something. So there's that. That's why I say take, please, take the attitude at the end, not at the beginning. Now, do you feel you've had to do that or if you can remember having to do that for an adult? Are you going, no. you know what, man? Oh, okay. It's just, it's really Adul confined to children. As adults. As for you needing to step in. Uh, uh, adults are a little bit more, they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, we'll rationalize. Children don't really rationalize. Adults will rationalize anything. I don't want to do this anymore because I'm worried about my hands getting hurt and I'm a musician. Okay, no problem. Uh, I don't want to do this anymore because I can't afford it. Mm. I don't have the time. Mm. Uh, these things I don't really believe. You know, I can't afford it. And I don't have the time or just excuses. It, 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 it just means you didn't, you didn't have a good experience or you didn't fall in love with Jiu-Jitsu. Wasn't your thing. Wouldn't you rather stomach and have someone tell you, you know, I just don't like doing this. It, it's, it's, is it more, is it better to hear instead Sometimes. of them saying, you know what? I just, I, I just, you know, I'm prioritizing my violin work and yeah, that's fine. There, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Yeah, they, 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 if they enjoy doing something else over jujitsu, that's fine. Look, you tried it. That jujitsu, in Gracie Baja, we have the saying, you know, jujitsu for everyone. Um, and that's true. Everyone should start it, everyone should try it. Jujitsu is not for everyone to stick with for their entire life. You know, I have, give me six months. Give me six months. Give me, if you like six months, great. Let's go to a year. Let's work on one year. In one year, I can get you out of your white belt. That means you can survive in a, in a fight, self-defense. I've taught you one year how to keep yourself alive. Not win, but keep yourself alive. Uh, give you your blue belt, and then let's see what happens You know, from there. But um, I, I think uh, I hear some excuses sometimes that just bother me. I'm, I, do, I do think that you're right. It's refreshing to just go, look, jiu-jitsu is number four on my list of things to do. That's it. And I'm like, all right, cool. When it's number one or number two, the academy will be here. Keep your gi. I'll teach you when you come back. You know, I'm happy with that. Homolo Bahal, he's known for like 
uh, team competition, and mm-hmm. then Alberto Crane. You know, I've I've been there, but I've seen TJ Dillashaw. They have a partnership with Bang Muay Thai, so there's this MMA vibe now. With with your academy, what can someone expect to get? Uh, like the vibe, the feeling. What what can someone expect to achieve? Enrolling at, your, enrolling at your place. I did everything I could to replicate the very early days of my jiu-jitsu, which was show you um, the most technical jiu-jitsu that I can teach um, because that's what I was taught. I wasn't taught to beat each other up. Um, I was taught to learn a lot of technique and then through time and patience and, and uh, hard work, you would be very good at it, right? There's no such thing as a, as a really bad black belt. Like you can't do something for 10 years and then be crummy at it or six years and be crummy at it, right? Um, so I was just taught that patience and that survival, that smoothness to it, that that get back up and come back in the next day. There's another five minutes of rolling. Uh, there's not a lot of I, – I, I do a lot to cut up the personalities, um, in the class where GB one, that's all fundamental stuff or not fundamental stuff. We don't have fundamentals anymore. I can get off on that tangent, but anyway, GB one, where everybody begins, you're not going to find, uh, anybody going crazy in that class. No one's working. We're all learning GB two. Okay. Now you're going to find there's guys that are much more intense, much more, much more technical GB three. There you're gonna find the competition drum, and you're gonna find the people who just grind it out. It's a pyramid. GB GB one has 25 people in it. GB two has 12. GB three has six, depending on the day. You understand? I mean, these are rough numbers, but you can see it goes like that. If you ran your whole academy based on MMA fighters and the hardest, the toughest of the toughest guys, you would have so few students you couldn't pay the bills. Most of the time, those guys who are training for MMA or the, the hardcore competitors, they don't have time for a real job anyway. They can't pay their tuition. <laughs> so it, it doesn't make – you don't run an entire academy around those competitors. You run an entire academy for the sake of jiu-jitsu, for the sake of teaching, for the love of the passion of jiu-jitsu. And then if you get six guys that go to the Worlds, great. If I get one – Great. If I never get a guy who wins a, a gold medal, I don't care. You know, I've taught thousand people jujitsu. I've introduced jujitsu to to however many people I can. And that, that's my that's my goal. That's my job. Well, Professor Robert, this has been a, hopefully just a part one. Maybe <laughs> yeah. we could do a couple more. Hey, uh, when uh, someone uh, I told someone I was going to be doing this, and they said, "What are you going to talk about?" And I said, "Well." Talk about jujitsu. So, so it'd be. I said it's going to be jujitsu a barbecue, and then sure enough, your first couple of questions were about jujitsu a barbecue. <laughs> right, like like society. I was so it was so funny how you were typing. Oh, I'm shipping tamales for for the new kids. Is that am I cultural appropriating? You know what I'm saying? I, I yeah, thought that, yeah. I thought that was awesome. Do Do you think um, societally, this is more a societal question. Do you feel because of this pandemic and everyone is living in a virtual world, the Gen Z kids, not only are they digital natives, but now you've taken away the, the feeling, the sense of touch of people. 
Well, I mean, do you think that it's going to affect them even more and be more virtual? It, like every, they're going to have a pronounced amount of incels, I feel. <laughs> you know, um, you're speaking as far as jiu-jitsu is concerned, I hope. Oh, or just and, 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 and or societal, just in general. Whichever your, your mind tells you to talk about. It's always going to go to jiu-jitsu. But um, you know what? I think that um, there, was, there was already enough of people staying at home. Um, if you look at the business world, what was one of the bigger businesses that was starting to up, was starting to really come up, which was food delivery, um, Yelp, Grubhub, you know, you can order directly off of those, you know, Postmates, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. There was already people who are working from home who are, you know, telecommuting, who Amazon delivers in a day here in Los Angeles. Uh, you can get food in an hour and a half. You technically never have to leave your house. And so there's some people who are making a living like that. There were already a chunk of people doing that. When we hit this pandemic, um, I think more people just realized that they don't need to go outside. Now, as far as like jujitsu is concerned, I've seen, I've already seen an uptick in people contacting me for intro lessons online um, because they, number one, uh, when you stay home all the time, you lack fitness you become sedentary. Um, and then you start to lose some social skills. When kids lose social skills, it's very bad. As an adult, we pick and choose. We can go make friends. We can not make friends. I think adults, we can figure out a way. We have social media. We can have friends, virtual friends. Children do not do well with, with they, they just can't do it. They have to have real people. So, you know, with, with, with people today being able to live almost 100% alone, you know, they're going to come and go. They're going to start jiu-jitsu. They're going to try to learn jiu-jitsu online. Hopefully, they'll come in. They find a whole new community, and it takes them out of their house, and it gives them that one piece, that one escape from their entire life. And here it is with people, you know. So I think that that's going to help build much better relationships. Um, but kids can't live alone. No, kids need, kids need a society. Um, without it, they become destructive. You could say <laughs> like, sure. My, my place is a mess all the time because my kids can't leave. So I take them to the Academy and they destroy the Academy because it's a padded room, you know? <laughs> so, um, I think it's bad for jujitsu. I think that people need for people who are doing jujitsu, they need that physical touch. It's just something that we have to have. Um, so, you know, hopefully it, it, it turns around soon. I got to have classes soon, man. Like as an instructor, I need to be in front of people. Look, I'm talking to you now for like an hour and a half because no one else will listen to me. I don't have a class to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it's, it's also because, you know, we can get down behind the microphone and it's oh, just, yeah. you know, chopping up life talk, jujitsu talk and stuff yeah. like that. But yeah, this is, this has been great. You know, um, we'll talk behind the scenes and hopefully I get to, See you and hang out and yeah. take you up on that cupcake. <laughs> Absolutely. I will uh, we'll for sure keep in contact with you about that. <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you so much, Professor Robert here. Where, where can they get a hold of you? Um, social media, your address, all things BJJ. Yeah, you know, um, the, uh, 
um, the Academy's GB Glendale, uh, Gracie Baja Glendale. We have our, our Instagram, GB Glendale. Um, I don't do social media very well, uh, but uh, I do have it. Uh, I think my Instagram name is InstaRobert. InstaBird? InstaBird. There you go. Yeah. Um, I made that a long, long time ago. Um, and uh, I don't use it that much anymore, but man, I'm on there every, I don't know, once a week. I'll jump on there or uh, find me on the, yeah, the Academy's page or find me on my personal page and then um, we'll go from there. Cool. Thank you so much, man. And uh, I I appreciate you. Thanks. You're welcome. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.